time London low paid. The most reliable study estimates that over 4% of the people who are convicted of crimes are innocent, which means possibly 80,000 people are always imprisoned in the United States for crimes they didn't commit. In his latest book, attorney Tim Backen, who has served as a prosecutor in the Kings County Prosecutor's Office and is currently a professor of law at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, proposes reforms to the current adversarial system. The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System is published by New York University Press, and it brings Mr. Back into our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. Thank you for inviting me. Is our 300-year legal system written into the Constitution? And how much did we inherit from the British? We inherited almost everything from the British. And no, the adversarial system is not written into the Constitution. There are, in the various amendments to the Constitution, some rights that turn out to be adversarial. But my approach is that we've become all too adversarial and that there is not an adequate opportunity for innocent people. After all, sometimes they're the only ones who know they're innocent. Nobody else believes in their innocence, do not have an adequate opportunity to search for facts that would exonerate them. And we'll I'm go saying, into that in more detail in a uh -huh. moment. Uh, do judges interpret the Constitution and other laws more to ensure a fair procedure rather than to search for the truth? The aspiration is for truth, but in reality, everyone in America's legal system is satisfied with proof beyond a reasonable doubt in criminal cases. That makes some practical sense in that we probably cannot ever be 100% certain in most cases that somebody is guilty or innocent. But nonetheless, we've come to the point where we believe that due process is the main remedy, and oftentimes people will say the only remedy, mm. to try to find who is innocent and who is guilty. I'm saying that there should be an additional inquiry. So you say the pursuit of due process uh, over other values, uh, uh, it, including the search for the truth, is really not working. It's, uh, we, don't we rely on the adversarial legal system to ensure that everyone is playing by the same rules? We do, but everybody can play by the same rules, but we can also construct some additional rules. As you noted in your opening, probably at least 4% of the people who are convicted are actually innocent. And of those, because we arrest about 10 million people a year, possibly each year there are about 2 million people in prison, there are 80,000 innocent people who are in prison. I don't know whether society is willing to accept that or whether they think that number is adequate, but I believe there's a way to reduce the number of innocent people who are convicted without increasing the number of guilty people who are acquitted. I don't think we've ever tried what I've proposed, the plea of innocence. Instead, we focused on thinking that the best we can do is provide proof beyond a reasonable doubt and all the processes that the Constitution requires. Both of those things, proof beyond a reasonable doubt and constitutional protections, are important, but they have been shown to be inadequate. And you, you say that once an innocent person is charged, a fair trial based on due process won't usually produce additional facts. Don't lawyers even sometimes take legal measures to conceal evidence? Lawyers, especially defense lawyers, have an obligation to try to conceal evidence that indicates that their clients are guilty. We've come to accept that as part of our adversarial process. It 
that's another point that I'm not sure that that's the way we should go. But in any event, the last thing that an innocent person wants is an ethos in the legal system that we're trying to conceal evidence. An innocent person, in every instance, and this would be without exception, will always want all the facts to come out. Now, there might be a slight variance on that, and that is assuming that all the facts cannot come out, sometimes it can appear that an innocent person might be guilty, but at its core, the innocent person conviction problem is based on the fact that the innocent person does not have access to all the facts. If all the facts were known, everybody who's reasonable would conclude that the innocent person is indeed innocent. So how likely is it that all of the facts in any case will ever be known? Is everyone playing by the same rules under the current system to accuse people, not public officials, bear the entire burden of proving their innocence? Public officials do not bear the burden of proving that people on trial are innocent. The way it works in almost every case is that prosecutors and police will go forward with charges and somebody will be held to account for the charges based on an indictment or some kind of initial charge issued by a prosecutor and then ratified by a judge. At that point, everything is turned over to the defense. The prosecution has no more obligation to acquire facts. This is especially difficult for defendants who are impoverished. And the fact is almost no one except the most wealthy ever will have enough money or resources to properly defend oneself. And sometimes, often in serious cases, the person who's innocent, or at least claims to be, will be in prison. In that situation, while in prison or jail, awaiting trial and without resources, it's virtually impossible to collect any additional facts. I'm arguing that there's another way, a way to collect additional facts to try to find exonerating facts prior to trial, rather than waiting after a conviction when it's almost possible to overturn a conviction and equally almost impossible to try to find any new facts, especially those that would exonerate the defendant. And you argue that the acquisition of facts almost always benefits an innocent person who's been accused of a crime. Yes. Uh, Just conceptually, if we think about it, let's take it a practical example. Let's say that last night we went to a donut shop at five to nine and we bought some donuts and we left. And at five after nine, somebody came into the donut shop and robbed the clerk. That, of course, was not us. The next day, a police officer, a detective who's investigating, and the only reason the detective is investigating is that the clerk has identified someone who looks like us as the person or persons who have committed the robbery, asked us where we were at about nine o'clock last night. It's very precarious, Mm -hmm. even tantamount to a conviction, if somebody says after kind of being identified as the robber. Yes, sure. We were at the donut store last night at about nine o'clock and bought donuts. That's almost an admission of guilt, even though we didn't really do it. But the only way that we're going to escape in that kind of situation, and remember, we've gone forward and told the truth. I was at the donut shop last night and I bought donuts, but I didn't commit the robbery, is to find additional facts. That additional fact will be some witness who saw us at 9.05. Granted, that's difficult to find, who can say that we were not at at, Or her watch at 9.05 as opposed to (laughs) 529. Right. Right. Uh, It's difficult. I'm not saying it's not. But the only way that 
that person that I've just described can avoid a conviction is probably to find a witness who can say that he was not at the donut shop at 9.05, assuming they're looking at their watches. Hasn't the, uh, the, the fact that there are so many video cameras around now cut down on this kind of problem? That's a very interesting point. And along with video cameras, many people believe that the advent of DNA is almost a magic elixir in helping innocent people escape conviction. Well, not in reality, at the donut shop, Robert. <laughs> not at the donut shop, unless the, somebody, the robber, left DNA at the donut shop, which is possible but unlikely. But there's this perception that cameras and DNA will protect the innocent people. DNA was used first in 1989 to exonerate an innocent person in a case. But the reality is, in far less than 1% of the cases is DNA evidence ever at issue. Almost all cases today still rely on witnesses, whether those are police officers or witnesses on the street. Uh, yes, cameras are helpful, but we've seen that the innocent person conviction problem, first identified in 1932, and the causes of it are somewhat similar today, uh, has not been reduced with the advent of DNA not appreciably reduced. No one would ever say that DNA is a bad idea. It's a great uh, component of the criminal the legal system and helpful to innocent people and helpful to society in convicting guilty people. But it's not sufficient for, as you said, that study was from uh, 2014 and it indicated 4.1% of the people who are convicted and in that study it was sentenced to death are actually innocent. Did you see things differently when you served as a, a prosecutor in Brooklyn? I didn't come up with the idea when I was a prosecutor in Brooklyn. But it was but already I, at the back of your head on some level? It, it was in the back of my head on some level, including when I was in law school. I always had this thought, why is there not a plea of innocent for people who can actually make a plausible claim of innocence so that we treat them differently? then we treat everybody else who pleads not guilty. Everybody should, of course, have the right to plead not guilty, but by the same token... Aren't they synonymous, not guilty and, and innocent? No. Somebody who pleads not guilty could be found not guilty, which means the prosecution cannot prove uh. beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed the crime, but that doesn't mean that he's innocent. It do just doesn't mean the prosecution hasn't been able to come up with enough evidence to prove that he's guilty. And I thought the majority of people, a large majority of people who are arrested are guilty of some crime. That is to say, they're eventually convicted of some crime, maybe not the crime for which they're arrested. But nonetheless, there should be an opportunity for innocent people to be able to distinguish themselves from all the people, the vast majority of whom are guilty. And so far, there isn't anything in the adversarial system, which started in the early 1700s in England, and which we adopted, it has not produced any kind of uh, reform or method for an innocent person to distinguish himself in that way. He is dumped in the big morass of everybody else in the system who's arrested, as I said, 10 million a year, and he has no special opportunity, even if he puts an obligation on himself to go forward and tell the prosecution what he knows, to find exonerating facts, to have a procedure that would allow him to separate himself from those who are guilty. You begin your book with a case you worked on involving a 19-year-old man who was beginning a life sentence for murder. A jury had found him guilty. 
What does his situation illustrate about what you're discussing in this book? He was from Washington, D.C., and he was sentenced to life in prison after a murder conviction. I was working in a legal assistance program where we law students were helping inmates who in those days would eventually be eligible for parole in the federal system. There's no longer parole in the federal system. But he said to me, and I didn't know the statistics at the time, but nonetheless, he protested his innocence and said, if we can, I want to appeal my case to the United States Supreme Court. Being idealistic, I said, sure, I will help you do that even though I had only two years of law school left and not knowing that appeals can sometimes take decades. But the reality is each year, only a handful of cases, the Supreme Court receives 8,000 or 9,000 petitions a year, ever are decided by the Supreme Court, and they almost never decide whether the jury verdict was correct or incorrect. They're looking to see whether the prosecutors and judges and police officers engaged in proper procedures and gave the defendant a fair trial. If defendants gave, were given a fair trial, then there's almost no opportunity for those defendants ever to be released from prison. He had been a judge guilty by a jury of his peers. That's right. Now, did he have a good case of, of being innocent? I only looked at the transcript. I can't say whether he was innocent or whether he was guilty, but of course, for people defending someone, that should not be of concern because they go forward and represent a client no matter what. But the point was, there was no procedure that I could align him with that would help distinguish himself from those who are guilty. At that point, of course, it's almost too late because he's convicted and he's in prison. And I've said, and many people have recognized, that by the time you're in prison, it's nearly impossible because of various rules to uh, ever get out of prison. And I can probably summarize it based on something that Justice Anton Scalia said in 2009 in a case where he rejected the idea that somebody should be able to get a hearing after he'd mm -hmm. been convicted and sentenced to death. Justice Scalia and almost no one realizes this in American society today, was correct. He said, anyone who receives a full and fair trial and is convicted of murder and sentenced to death does not have a right to access the federal courts. That's still a correct statement. We like to believe that if the Supreme Court or any other court believed that somebody was guilty, uh, sorry, somebody was not guilty and indeed innocent and was in prison, that somehow that person would be released. But the reality of it is because of, as you noted in the beginning, Leonard, constitutional rules in the United States, inmates in that position, if they've had a full and fair hearing, will almost uh, never receive an additional hearing beyond their trial. It's and almost an impossible task that illustrates the importance of finding exonerating facts prior to trial, not searching for them after trial. And if he had been uh, executed, even uh, though he hadn't committed the crime, there was no way of going back and resolving yes. that problem. Yes. Uh, except saying, oops, made a big mistake. Yes. Okay. yes. There's a tragic irony in that. In the 2014 study that you cited, 
the researchers found that, in fact, there were, as I said, 4.1% of the people who were actually innocent. And they can figure that out because DNA is applicable in murder cases more than it is applicable in other cases. And we can be fairly sure in a small segment of cases that somebody was innocent. The reality is of those 4.1% of the people who were convicted and innocent in death penalty cases, they estimated that a handful of those people, they're not sure, had actually been executed. My guest is Tim Backen, B-A-K-K-E-N. His latest book, The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System, published by New York University Press. This is WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Aren't eyewitness misidentifications and even false accusations fairly common? So how do we get past that? I don't know that we can say that false accusations are common, but they do occur. What we can say is that the leading causes of innocent person convictions are mistaken eyewitness identifications, suspects who confess but are innocent, prosecution error, defense attorney error, and oftentimes uh, people who are involved in a case who have an interest in the case and make a deal with the prosecution and testify falsely. One point surrounding that is that even if those are the top contributors to innocent person convictions, they all emanate from human error, whether the error is intentional or unintentional. It's very unlikely that human error in any system will ever change. We've had 300 years to try to remedy the human error, the mistakes by prosecutors and defendants and everybody else in the system, but we haven't been able to ameliorate that error. As a result of that, the only way that we can counterbalance the error is by finding relatively or actual facts that would show that the clerk in the donut store last night, for example, was wrong by finding 10 alibi witnesses to say that I was not at the Dunkin' Donut shop last night at 9.05 when the robbery actually did occur. But under the, that, cur- under the current yes. system, aren't accused innocent people responsible for finding the facts that could exonerate them? It's, it would be kind of difficult if I were arrested to go and get that donut shop clerk to change the story. Well, you don't want the donut clerk clerk to change his story, that is, of robbery, but you would want the donut clerk to say that I was mistaken. But very few people, after making a claim or after testifying in the grand jury, which is the place that our society uses to hold people for trials, will ever change their testimony. They will be locked into that testimony, and they truly believe that their identification of the person who robbed them or a a particular donut uh, shop clerk is correct. It's now an established fact. That's an established fact, but it's not a true fact. It's It's a mythical fact. It doesn't really exist, but it exists in court, and it's considered to be a true fact rather than a mythical fact. When, indeed, the only way to counter that, what is presumed to be a true fact, but is a mythical fact, is to try to find additional evidence that will 
show that that fact is not indeed one that's but that true. But that sounds like something rather difficult to pull off. It's extremely difficult to pull off because most police officers and prosecutors act in good faith. And when they bring a case, they bring charges against somebody. They have a good faith belief that the charges are meritorious. They've done some investigation into a case, but they have an ethos where if they believe that they have probable cause and convict, convict, convict somebody beyond a reasonable doubt in trial, that will be sufficient. They are not considering that they have an obligation to try to find the truth. And of course, as I mentioned before, the main thing that any innocent person wants is as many facts as he or she can find, and of course, the truth. That, as you noted in the beginning, is not the ultimate goal of the legal system, even though it is an aspiration. Doesn't the current system make it difficult for innocent people to testify in their own behalf in ways that might protect them? Yes. In old England in the 1700s, everybody was expected to testify. The advent of the right to remain silent is relatively new. And what we sometimes don't realize is that there is no longer a right to remain silent in England. There had been for generations the right to remain silent the way there is a right to remain silent in the United States. But that has changed in England. And now... Is that um, a good right is in your... Defendant, I think it's a very good right, but what I'm saying is that if somebody cannot exercise the right, it's not a very good thing. The example that you used is apt. It's this, and a lot of people are, as I said, in jail in, uh, while awaiting trial. And the reason they might be in jail while awaiting trial is that they have a record. Maybe even it's a past robbery, and they're uh, alleged to have committed a robbery right now. The fact that they've committed a past robbery makes it extremely difficult for them to testify on a new robbery case because the prosecution is authorized in most instances to introduce their prior crimes against them. Even though they're innocent on the prior, on the current case, they still have prior crimes for which they were convicted. And as a result, even though they want to speak up and tell the truth, they don't have a practical opportunity to do so. And that adds and, to the appearance of guilt? Uh, it's difficult to know what jurors believe, but if we believe uh, former President Trump, he said at one point anybody who exercises the right to remain silent is, of course, guilty. But mm. now, recently, he exercised the right to remain silent in a civil case, but we shouldn't presume that he or anybody else who exercises the right to remain silent is guilty because it's sometimes a very necessary right to have. The donut example a case is a very good one. If a detective comes to us the next day after the donut shop robbery and asks us uh, whether we were at the donut shop last night about nine o'clock, there's only one answer to give, and that's to remain silent. We should not say we were there because that tends to incriminate us, even though we uh, were not there at the time the robbery was committed. And we should not lie to a detective, which in some jurisdictions can be a crime itself. We should remain silent. The right to silence is important. It's important individually, and it's important as a bulwark against authoritarianism in society. We should have the right to tell the government, no, I don't want to speak with you. England has gone a different way, and that's the way that was uh, at, in action at the beginning of the adversarial system. But nonetheless, there should be a right for an innocent person to speak up, and through the plea of innocence, I think I've 
created that right. You point out that society through police, prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges and juries often can't find the facts that will lead to exoneration. Uh, the, the facts that will almost always benefit an innocent person who's been accused of a crime. Yes. And the reason for that is that a lot of the people who are innocent but accused of a crime did not necessarily come into the situation or the environment with clean hands. As I mentioned, some of them have prior convictions. And one reason they might have been swept up on a current case in which they're innocent is that they put themselves in other unsavory circumstances or conditions. Now, that's not everybody, but it certainly is some kinds of cases. In those cases, as I was describing, one of the main things that they need, one of the exonerating facts that they could use is somebody to testify on their behalf. But if people... That doesn't happen? You can't just uh, say, have somebody testify saying, no, I know Leonard Lopate. He <laughs> never would do anything like that. He's they would say, no, they, they cannot, because character evidence is not allowed in court with very few exceptions uh, as to be almost negligible. The reality is, um, if you found somebody that said Leonard is a great guy, which, of course, is true, that would be interesting, but it wouldn't tell whether or not Leonard committed the particular crime that some witness at the scene in an unsavory environment uh, said that uh, the defendant did, that Leonard did. It would be a tough situation, even though we had uh, several people, a dozen people come in and say that uh, you or someone else didn't commit the crime, which leads to another interesting thing that research has shown us. People oftentimes have their relatives come in and testify. Research has shown that if you bring in your mother to testify, in reality, you're probably increasing the risk that you'll be convicted <laughs> because jurors do not believe uh -huh. the relatives of defendants on trial are telling the truth. And the research shows that that, in fact, increases the likelihood of conviction. There are that and there are several other things, young age, youthfulness, and a prior conviction uh, are things that supercharge the opportunity for a conviction or the likelihood of a conviction. But until recent research, we haven't known that. And so if somebody has a conviction and he believes he can't testify, but he was at home at the time of the robbery and wants to call his mother or grandmother to testify, he can't really do that. He can legally, but he shouldn't do it because research shows that increases the likelihood of conviction wow. because the jury is thinking that the only witnesses that he can produce to support him are his relatives. Right. And if he then, therefore, cannot produce an alibi witness to say, other than his mother or grandmother, he was not at the scene of the robbery at the time the robbery occurred, then he's in a very difficult situation and likely to be convicted. Should members of the jury be allowed to ask the defendant and witnesses questions? I think there's an argument that they should be able to, probably not directly, but through a judge in a very controlled situation. Witnesses uh, sometimes have a lot to say and they can't get out what they want to say because of the rules of evidence and because defense lawyers or prosecutors don't think of the uh, correct things to say. And you raise another point in our system, whether it's 
considered authoritarian or non-authoritarian, my trial is fairly authoritarian, ruled over by a judge and the rules of evidence. And it's very difficult sometimes for additional evidence to come out. 12 people are better than one person, defense attorney or prosecution, in thinking of questions to ask that would be relevant. So I think there's a role for jurors to ask questions. In some civil cases, they may ask questions, but that has to be funneled through the judge, not a question directly from a juror to a witness. Do defense attorneys usually believe their clients' claims of innocence? (laughs) Defense attorneys probably usually do not believe their clients' claims of innocence. I've had defense attorneys tell me that in their years of practice, they've encountered only one or two people they believe are actually innocent. Even though there probably were a lot more. uh, Possibly a lot more, yes. But most defense attorneys will not uh, care whether a client is innocent or guilty. They will provide the same defense for the client. One defense attorney, and there's a thought of among defense attorneys that they shouldn't care or they shouldn't inquire even into whether their clients are innocent because it puts too much of an emotional burden on them to try to find exonerating evidence. And in trying to find exonerating evidence for somebody who claims he's innocent, when in fact most of their clients are guilty of some crime, they will give a lesser defense to all their other clients. And therefore, they need to work more evenly and give everybody exactly the same defense, not considering whether somebody is innocent or guilty. I'm not sure that's the right way to go, especially because it's not responsive to somebody who has a plausible claim of innocence and indeed wants to go forward and speak to the prosecution or speak to the jury, but cannot because of the things that we talked about previously, mainly a prior criminal record. Well, don't defense attorneys sometimes pressure their clients to plead guilty in exchange for a lesser charge? Would that be less likely if the things you're proposing here were to be put into effect? We know that 15% of the people who are found to be innocent after being convicted pleaded guilty. That means there are people who knowingly plead guilty to crimes they know they did not commit. And their defense lawyers tell them honestly, even assuming the defense lawyers believe they're innocent, that if you go to trial because the evidence indicates that you committed the crime, even assuming we believe you didn't commit the crime, you will be convicted, likely. And here's the possible sentence. Some states have mandatory minimum sentences. New York is one of those states in homicide cases, for example, where someone convicted of what's called murder in the second degree will be sentenced to prison for a minimum of 15 years to life. He must serve 15 years before being eligible for parole. We have to put ourselves in the position of an innocent person in that situation. He's been charged. The evidence shows that he seemed to have committed the crime, but he really didn't. And the prosecution recognizes the weakness of its case, but still has a good faith basis to go forward for a trial. And then decides to offer the defendant a sentence of, let's say, six to 18 years in prison. If you're facing 15 to life, which means you might never get out of prison if you're not paroled in New York State, Mm. then six to 18 years, a mandatory six years before being eligible for parole, doesn't seem like the worst thing in the world. It's a terrifying thing. 
but it's not the worst thing in the world. It's a cost-benefit analysis that every defendant has to make, and lawyers have to advise their clients accordingly, and they can't make the final decision on that. It's a very tough decision, and it's a decision that is made uh, by defendants because of the trial penalty. Defendants who go to trial will almost always be sentenced more severely if they're convicted than if they had pleaded guilty instead. You're listening to Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. On this side of the law, on that side of the law, who is right, who is wrong, who is for and who's against the law? Well, you see, I didn't really mean you any harm. But I, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Tim Backen. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. In return now to Tim Backen, who is the first civilian promoted to professor of law at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy. Uh, His previous books include The Cost of Loyalty, Dishonesty, Hubris, and the Failure in the U.S. Military. And we are discussing his latest, The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System, that is published by New York University Press. Now, I'm wondering about uh, the the lawyers that people have. For example... uh, Aren't many uh, poor people reliant on uh, public defenders, uh, a system that's often overworked and underfunded? Yes. Almost all poor people are represented by public defenders in New York City Legal Aid and other similar organizations. And sometimes they're represented by private lawyers who, for a reduced fee, will take cases Mm. in the criminal courts and be paid by the state or the county. Those lawyers, in my experience in New York, are very good lawyers, and they are overworked, but nonetheless, they provide a very good defense for their clients. But as you said, Because they're committed to finding their clients not guilty. They're very committed to finding their clients not guilty. However, they suffer from the same disadvantages that judges in our system suffer from, and that is they have very little ability to find exonerating facts. Mm. It's the prosecution that has the authority to obtain warrants from judges, subpoena witnesses, work with police officers, offer cooperation agreements to uh, people who want to testify in return for a benefit from the prosecution. And it's those offices, the prosecution offices, that have far larger resources than public defender offices and the legal aid offices in New York City, for example. But as importantly, probably more importantly, it's the prosecutors in whom we bestow almost all the authority. Most people who study the system carefully recognize that it's the prosecution decision to charge 
that ultimately determines what will happen in almost all the cases, not just whether to issue a charge in the first place, but what is the top count of the charge. The top count of the charge is critical because it means that if the sentence accompanying that top charge is high enough, the defendant, whether innocent or not, feels great pressure to plead guilty. Do all but the enormously wealthy usually have enough money to pay for a complete defense? I don't think they do. Uh, And the reason is that a complete defense means that a lawyer would almost work full time for several months on a case. And most people can't afford that. The fees for lawyers in large cities could range from $250 to $1,000 an hour in criminal cases. And it's even far more than that in civil cases where corporations are paying the fees of lawyers. But just imagine some uh, person, except the wealthy, being able to try to afford paying a lawyer $500 per hour, for example, for full-time work over three months on a case. And then getting investigators to go out and and find all sorts of information that might exonerate you. Yes. Uh, As a result, we have a truncated defense. Imagine going into a hospital and needing heart surgery, something very critical, and assuming that we have Medicare or some kind of health insurance, we wouldn't spare uh, any uh, cost. We would have an adequate number of doctors, nurses, technicians. We would do laboratory tests from beginning to end, and that would, of course, cost a great deal of money. There is no such opportunity for an innocent person or any person for that matter to defend herself or himself in the courts today. Do trials look different depending on the location of the court? You mean the location in terms of state? Yes, cities, area. For example, uh, what I'm leading to is how much would the accused race be a factor in some of the, the, uh, the kinds of cases you're talking about? It's an interesting um, question because there is a racial component in a lot of cases, but in contrast, in innocent person cases, the research shows, or at least fails to show, that there's any racial component at all. That is to say, innocent people are not uh, seemingly subjected to charges because of race, white, black, Hispanic, or otherwise, they arrive at their situation because of the errors that I discussed and noted, that is, witnesses making mistakes, they confess, but it doesn't seem that there's anything to indicate, once they're arrested at least, that the race of a defendant, a suspect who's been charged, has anything to do with whether or not he will be wrongfully convicted. But Yeah, but we keep on hearing about people being wrongfully arrested. Just recently, a, uh, a minister was watering a neighbor's lawn, and the cops arrested him simply because he was a black man on a white man's lawn. I don't know that case, but I believe yeah. that those things happen in American society. But all I can say is that the research into innocent persons conviction does not indicate that race has an effect on whether someone is wrongfully uh, convicted. What we can say 
is, and here's an example, I think, Leonard, of what you're talking about, and it's an apt point, that there might be some kind of unknown bias in the system that we cannot recognize. I point out in uh, an early part of the book that in one instance in Georgia, the, the race of the defendant and the race of the victim will affect whether mm-hmm. someone will receive the death penalty. But the Supreme Court said in that case, McCleskey versus Kemp in 1987, that courts cannot consider that because the only thing they can consider is what happened in an actual case, not the overall uh, possible bias that might consist in Georgia and that apparently did exist in Georgia. In the innocent person uh, case, we see something of the same sort, but even in individual uh, cases, the research does not yet show that there's racial bias once somebody has been arrested. Doesn't the system also lead to guilty people being found not guilty? That is a result of the system and in that uh, the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt is a high burden of proof. And probably in most cases, the main defense, at least the cases that go to trial, is that the prosecution cannot prove evidence that establishes guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Defense lawyers might say it looks like my client might be guilty. I have to concede that if they take that tack. But they would say, if you want to follow the law, that doesn't mean that my client is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and you must acquit him. In those cases, yes, guilty people will be freed. And you point out what society has really not considered. It seems almost reluctant or fearful of considering how many Guilty people should society release to ensure that one innocent person is not convicted. Some people have talked about the so-called Blackstone ratio. Be sure to release 10 guilty people or accept that we'll release 10 guilty people to ensure that one innocent person will not be convicted. I don't know whether that's the proper percentage. We've never had a discussion about that. And similarly, we've never had a discussion about the percentage of innocent people who we can tolerate being convicted to ensure that a certain number or percentage of guilty people, in addition to those who are found not guilty now, will be found not guilty in the future. I'm saying we should have that discussion, but even if we don't have the discussion and we reach some tentative conclusion that about 4% of the people who are convicted are actually innocent, that percentage is too high. It that means that there are a lot of people incarcerated who did not commit a crime. And part of my approach is that even if you don't agree that 4% is too high, you can't disagree that we should try to lower the percentage of innocent people who are convicted if we can do so without increasing the percentage of guilty people who are acquitted. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Tim Backen, and his latest book is The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System, published by New York University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I see regular reports on television of people being exonerated in light of new evidence becoming available. How much of that is the result of work being done by the innocence movement? 
the innocence movement has been important, but uh, some people would say that the innocence movement has reached its logical end in that while it can continue to help release people who've been convicted, there is not any mechanism that the movement proposes that will change the structure of the adversarial system so that people will not be convicted in the first place. They, in the innocence movement, and I can't argue against any of the work in the innocence movement because it's been absolutely critical and necessary for innocent people, that uh, identification procedures should be made better, interrogations should be videotaped, mm. uh, people who cooperate with the government prosecutors in return for a deal should be scrutinized more carefully. Prosecution offices should be scrutinized more carefully. Defense attorneys should have more resources. Nobody can argue against that. But what we've seen is that despite all of those recommendations, states haven't been willing to incorporate the recommendations. And even if they did incorporate the recommendations, we would still be stuck with all the human error that causes the wrongful convictions in the first place. Eyewitnesses who make mistakes in identifying somebody, defendants who are scared and young and falsely confess to a crime they didn't commit, people making deals with the prosecution and lying because they want to get a lesser sentence on their own cases. There is nothing that any improvement in procedures will do to change that kind of human error that is inherent in any legal system. Therefore, I think the only conclusion is that there has to be another mechanism to allow people who can make plausible claims of innocence. I'm not saying everybody should be able to uh, plead innocent. Plausible claims of innocence, along with their attorneys affirming their innocence. Their attorneys have to believe that they are an in innocent. They should be able to uh, have access to an opportunity to find exonerating facts. The best way to find those exonerating facts is through the prosecution offices. Now, you, you mentioned earlier that DNA evidence has become more and more a factor in many cases, but usually that comes up after somebody has been convicted, doesn't it? Why, why wasn't it a factor when the person was on trial? It's a great summary of what has happened in our uh, system. It used to be that prosecutors opposed the introduction of new DNA evidence after a conviction. In fact, one of the ways that I first got introduced to uh, this concept, the, what brought me to create this concept, the plea of innocence, is when I was asked to present at a conference reasons why prosecutors would not want DNA evidence to be introduced after trial. I couldn't do it. And I couldn't argue for that. So I came up with the plea of innocence. But mm -hmm. in the meantime, now all states will offer the opportunity to uncover DNA events, to discover DNA events and test it prior to a trial. That's new, but it exists everywhere. And despite that opportunity for all defendants in all cases, guilty or innocent, we still haven't seen what appears to be a reduction in the innocent person conviction rate, which to me strongly supports the idea that all this human error in the adversarial system will continue. And yes, DNA and new identification procedures will be helpful, but 
they will not be helpful in the vast majority of cases where innocent people are convicted. Don't innocent people who've been released but with criminal convictions often have difficulties throughout the rest of their lives? Anybody who has a criminal conviction, yes, will have difficulties throughout their lives. An innocent person who has been released but still has a conviction on his record will have a difficult time getting a job in the future and a difficult time integrating back into society. But there are innocent people who have been exonerated 10, 15, 20, 30 years after they were convicted. And by that time, their lives have been uh, severely curtailed, to say the least. And they have opportunities to live, but they don't have the same opportunity to live a life the way a person could live if instead of being convicted and exonerated 20 years later, he could find exonerating facts prior to trial and be exonerated at that point. It's hard enough being accused of a crime. It's much more difficult to be convicted of a crime and then sometime mm -hmm. in the future released, exonerated, because by that time his and his family's lives have been upended and they will never get back what they lost. Getting back to a point you made earlier that although our current legal system produces false guilty verdicts and imprisons innocent people, it also produces false not guilty verdicts that allow guilty people to go free. Can any system be perfect? No, no system can be perfect. And I'll try to provide an example of the app point that you just made. One of the main recommendations for changing identification procedures, for example, there are lineups. Six people stand in a lineup and a witness is mm -hmm. uh, supposed to try to identify the person in the lineup who uh, attacked her or who robbed her. That's difficult, but we have that procedure. One, and sometimes um, they're intimidated and afraid to... People are intimidated and afraid, and uh, people in that situation will make mistakes. Mm -hmm. One way to lessen the mistakes research has shown is instead of presenting to the witness six people in a line at one time, present to the witness one at a time. Uh, filler number one, that's what people in a lineup are called. Then take that person off stage and present filler number two, three, four, five, and six. That is a method to decrease the number of wrongful identifications, erroneous identifications by witnesses. However, the research shows in addition that that is also a method that will increase the number of guilty people who are not identified by the witness through that method. Again, we go back to not having a discussion about the number of people who should be uh, exonerated versus the number of people who are guilty and we can accept will be exonerated to save that one innocent person. We haven't discussed that. And I'm saying I'm not against that kind of lineup showing one person at a time if the research shows that that's valuable and it appears to show that it is. But that's not a method that is adequate 
because it increases the number of guilty people who will go free. Hmm. A better way, or at least... Uh, it works so well on the TV dramas. <laughs> it, uh, it works great on TV, but it doesn't work great in reality, the research shows. Uh, a better way is to find exonerating facts so that there's not so much pressure on a witness to be correct to determine whether or not someone who is charged will be convicted. I want to thank you so much for being such a good guest on our show today, Tim Backen, whose most recent book is The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System. It is published by New York University Press. It's, um, well, it's been a depressing but very informative conversation. Thank you again. Well, uh, well, thanks for saying that it's informative. I appreciate that. But there is some depression in the process, but there is optimism because I think there is a way to find those exonerating facts that will free innocent people. That brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Kaziah Glow, the executive producer of Leonard Thopit at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. Uh, check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. BAI is facing some serious economic problems uh, because of the pandemic and other things. And we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org. Org. Well, we need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Plea of Innocence, Restoring Truth to the American Justice System by Tim Backen. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, whatever you can afford. Uh, and you can do that until you decide you don't want to do it anymore. We will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 or more. Either way, we hope you'll call right now. Uh, we, um, we are the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, and we hope you'll help keep us alive uh, and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And I am um, hoping that you can join us on Tuesday when Jonathan Friedland will discuss his book, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. Have a great weekend.